This is One in 59, a presentation of Anderson Center for Autism. One in 59 is a weekly show devoted to topics related to autism spectrum disorder. Welcome to One in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, Chief Development Officer at Anderson Center for Autism. And this morning, I'm speaking with Megan Miller. Megan is an Assistant Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the University of California, Davis. And she's also the lead researcher on their sibling study. Um, And recently, we read a paper that you were involved in uh, regarding autism and ADHD sharing some of the same features. So, Megan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's my pleasure. And I'd love for you with that long introduction to just break it down a little bit and maybe start by talking a little bit overview about what you do at the university. Um, And then, you you know, we'd love for you to talk about the the paper and the study that you just came out with and, and what implications you see there. Sure. So, uh, as you said, I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and also at the Mind Institute, um, and I'm a clinical psychologist by training. So, although I'm primarily working in research right now, I have a clinical background working with families and kids with autism and ADHD, and my focus really research-wise is on the intersection of autism and ADHD, and particularly where we might see overlap and where we might see differences, and then especially how early we can identify those things. So I primarily study infants who have a family history of autism or ADHD looking for early markers, and particularly looking for early markers that might overlap between these two populations. So that sort of is the background of this particular study that we published um, back in February uh, to kind of lay the groundwork for that. So we've known for quite a long time at this point that risk for autism is elevated among younger siblings of children with autism. And we also know that autism and ADHD frequently co-occur. But the prior research has also found that moms with ADHD are more likely to have a child with ADHD than moms without ADHD, but also more likely to have a child with autism than moms without ADHD. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. It's kind of, it's intriguing. at the very least. So we've known of this relationship between autism and ADHD for quite a while, but didn't really have good data on recurrence risk for ADHD among younger siblings of children with ADHD, even Mm -hmm. though we know that like autism, it's also highly heritable. Mm -hmm. And then we also didn't know much about how these conditions run across families. So we were really interested with this study in obtaining unbiased recurrence risk estimates by addressing this sort of gap in the knowledge in a sample that consisted of families who had at least one subsequent child after the diagnosis of an older child. So what we did was using large medical records database looking at the recurrence risk of autism among younger siblings of autism, but also among younger siblings of children with ADHD and vice versa. And what we found is that compared to later-born siblings of non-diagnosed children, later-born siblings of children with autism were more likely to be diagnosed with autism or with ADHD. And likewise, compared to later-born siblings of non-diagnosed children, later-born siblings of children with ADHD were more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD or with autism. So this really just provides further support for this shared familial, probably genetic, but we don't know for sure, mechanisms that underlie these two disorders. That is fascinating. Okay, so so 
one of the things that always catches me up in these types of studies, and and not yours in particular, but just you know certain ones where we're li- looking, and I want to I don't want to make any generalizations, but like at a possible link between ADHD and autism, and then the later born siblings, is people will often ask, well, but what about the people who have ADHD and there is no autism ever found in that family, whether in a, in a, in a parent or in a later born sibling is, I mean, I, I never, I hear that question and I'm like, I don't know really how to answer that. Is it, is it, do we look at like a a majority of uh, families showing that heritable link and, and just the other, and then when we don't see it, it's just sort of, I don't know, I don't know what the word is, but it's, uh, it's not pertinent to that particular study. Am I making sense? Like there's, there are still probably people who have ADHD and that's all you're ever going to see. Yeah, it's it's very challenging um, because there are probably, I mean, both of these conditions are multifactorial, meaning that there are probably a lot of different genes and potentially environmental factors involved and that the combination of those things differs from individual to individual who ends up with the diagnosis. So it's not the same in every child. And even within families, there have been some studies looking at genetic Uh, potential genetic anomalies or markers in family members who have autism and even siblings within the same family who both have autism, for example, can have actually different underlying genetic differences. So Mm -hmm. it's not even that within the same family, the genetic sort of anomaly will be the same. Um, So it's extremely challenging and difficult to try to understand these things. Um, And one of the challenges the field has faced, I think, for a little while now is that we've known we've known about this risk for um, ADHD or we're, we've, we had begun to learn about this risk for ADHD in family members of individuals with autism, but particularly when we've been focusing on younger siblings and these um, infant sibling studies where we follow babies from shortly after birth and follow them prospectively over time, a, num- a number of them have, do go on to develop ADHD, but not autism. But you, what you raised is really pertinent there because we don't really know is ADHD outside the context of familial risk for autism the same as ADHD inside the, the context of familial risk for autism? Is it the yeah. same? That's a great question, ADHD, right? Or is, or, or is it because? And that that leads me to another question. Thank you for that. Is ADHD, from my understanding, and it's limited. My understanding is limited, uh, but. It, I would think that a lot of diagnosis there comes from observable learning, you know, behaviors during learning and in school and kind of checklists and things that you have parents and and caregivers and doctors and teachers complete. I don't and maybe there's more to it. Maybe you were looking at more biomedical markers there. But that's 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 even more fascinating that there could be um, something that looks very symptomatically or manifests itself looking very similar. But it's actually two totally different kind of forms of ADHD. Right. I mean, yeah, so you're right. That That is how we would evaluate for ADHD is this combination of parent report, teacher report, and then uh, direct observation of the child. Um, and you're also right, you alluded to this, that we typically don't start to see or catch it until kids are in a school setting mm-hmm. and it becomes much more obvious, even though probably the signs and symptoms are there earlier than that. But it can be you know, from one person to another look very different in terms of the combinations of symptoms that um, lead a child to meet criteria for ADHD. And then especially if you're, which is not, so we didn't focus on in this study kids with autism and ADHD, but that's a whole other sort of can of worms and challenge of figuring out what what is 
a symptom of the autism and what is a symptom of the ADHD and how do you really tease those apart or can you? Right. Um, and so that's something we're very interested in, in learning from, from our ongoing work where we're focusing on these younger, like babies, younger mm-hmm. siblings of children with, not just children, younger siblings of children with autism, but also younger siblings of children with ADHD and studying them, um, which is different than what we did in this particular study, which was just based on medical records. Now we're recruiting babies who come in for assessments every six to 12 months for the first several years of life and hopefully beyond where we can see them in person um, and measure all of these types of behaviors that we think might help us either distinguish these groups of children as they go on to develop these conditions um, and understand what early markers differ between them, but also figure out how they're the same. You know, they they look very different on paper when you look at the diagnostic criteria for autism versus ADHD, but we see lots of overlap in, in some features like both populations have some social skills challenges or executive functioning challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there are some commonalities as well. I, I find it really fascinating. And then I also think on top of all of what you just described, then there's the fact that autism is a spectrum mm-hmm. and, and that, you know, there's that phrase out there that everybody knows, which is if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. So even within the range of, let's say, severely challenged, you know, somebody on the very lower functioning end of, of the autism spectrum, you're still looking at an individual person. And some of whom, you know, they're really challenging, um, you know, maybe a couple of things is, is like uh, the social aspect, you know, really nonverbal and 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 maybe some unsafe, you know, self-dangerous behaviors out in the community, like, you know, no awareness of safety and just running out onto the road mm-hmm. and things like that. And those are some of the behaviors that I'm used to seeing at Anderson. Um, mm-hmm. And then you might also see somebody who's also severely challenged, but is highly verbal, but is behaviorally engaging in self-injurious behavior or aggression. And I don't know, I, I, I'm throwing a lot out there at you only because I think that this is really interesting and I, I see a lot of um, further questions. So I'm hopeful that, that you're going to continue this work and keep, uh, keep sharing what you, what you found. Because like I said, I've been in the field for a long time and I didn't uh, recognize that I did recognize that there were so many overlaps between ADHD and autism. Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, prior to the current edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, technically you weren't supposed to diagnose both. So if a child had autism, you weren't allowed, at least on paper, to diagnose ADHD. And that has been a change since 2013. I mean, people were doing it because people recognized that a child could, in fact, have both sets of symptoms and need support in both areas. But you know, technically it wasn't permitted until 2013 when the DSM-5 came out. And I think that has also kind of led to um, an increase in, in focus, both research, but also clinically trying to figure out, you know, how do we do this in sort of a gold standard way, um, evaluate for both autism and ADHD um, and distinguish which is which. But ultimately, I, my kind of my take home from, from the the study that I mentioned earlier is at this point, I feel comfortable saying that we should at the very least just be monitoring younger siblings of children with autism, both for autism, but also ADHD. And then I think maybe a bit more surprisingly for for some folks, monitoring younger siblings of children with ADHD, not only for ADHD, but also for autism, which I think people have tended to not really think much about. Um, But we should be kind of monitoring for both sets of symptoms when there's 
essentially sort of this neurodevelopmental risk within a family. Yeah, I mean, it sounds it sounds like uh, something that would be very yeah. probably both a little bit I don't know if concerning is the right word, but but it's something that would mean be very meaningful to families with young children. Um, and we're going to take a short <laughs> break, but when we come back, I have some questions for you about the reaction and the response to the families that you've been reaching out to um, because I know you need their consent for these studies. So we'll come back to that in sure. just a minute. This is one in fifty nine, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, and we'll be right back. One in 59 people are diagnosed with autism, so you probably know someone impacted. Here at Anderson Center for Autism, we are here to help. We've got a state-of-the-art education center that harnesses the power of technology, the arts, and evidence-based practices to unlock the enormous potential of each Anderson student. We've got a nurturing residential program designed specifically to promote growth and foster friendships for all who live on our beautiful campus. We have a consulting team who shed light on what the families, schools, and groups can do to help empowering everyone in their path with the knowledge needed to make a difference. At Anderson, we're here to optimize the quality of life for every person with autism. We're here for you. We're here for your family. Learn more. Call us at 845-889-4034 or visit us online at andersoncenterforautism.org. That's 845-889-4034 or visit us online at andersoncenterforautism.org. Welcome back to 1 in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, and today I'm talking with Megan Miller, who's the assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the University of California, Davis, and a leading researcher on a sibling study going on. We're talking today about some interesting findings regarding some overlaps between ADHD and autism between siblings. And also, you had mentioned earlier, Megan, that um, part of what you found initially um, that has been... Uh, published now is is that uh, mothers with ADHD were more likely to both have a child with ADHD and also more likely to have a child with autism, which I think sort of is leading these next questions about, you know, why that would be and, and why there's a connection and how the connection is between uh, potentially between ADHD and autism. Um, so I'm finding this all all really um, exciting. Whenever I interview a researcher, I always also like to paint a picture of what this really looks like. So you said now yeah. you're involved and your team is involved in working with babies and who are coming in for like their six and 12 month visits every every year or, you know, every six months mm -hmm. for the first few years of life. So first of all, um, I would think that there's a big difference between doing these big, massive medical review studies um, and then actually interacting with the babies. Is that is that something mm -hmm. that, that, that changes things for you and any team members who, who you're working with? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when we, this was actually my first experience using medical records data. Um, most of my experience is sort of real participants in, in the lab and, and working with humans and families. Um, so that was an interesting experience for me because, it, you know, there's so much that we wish we knew about these um, individuals who um, who have consented for us to kind of use this medical, de-identified medical records data. Right. So we don't know who they are. We don't actually know anything about them other than their um, diagnostic label and their relation to another individual in the data set, sibling or parent. Um, and that's about all we know. And, you know, that's the way it should be. We shouldn't be able to know much more about them. Um, but there, it leads to a lot more questions that we can only answer by meeting families in person. And that's one of the reasons that we do the work we're doing now where we're 
not just looking backward at medical record data or at um, you know data that was collected long ago, but looking forward. We're we're seeing families when their babies are pretty new and following them in real time over time to try to catch the symptoms as they emerge in the moment rather than having to look back and try to identify when, when things started changing. Um, so it's an amazing team effort, both with, you know, members of the lab as part of the team, but the families in particular and the families who are so dedicated to coming in repeatedly for, I mean, these assessments are not short. <laughs> They're several hours long really? with their babies and toddlers and they come back every six to 12 months and keep participating and um, some of them drive you know an hour or two to come participate uh, which is incredible so we are very indebted to the families who participate in our research and um, help us learn things pretty selflessly you know we do um, you know like I said I'm a clinical psychologist and we have a couple of other clinicians on the team who either do assessments with the young children or supervise them the assessments um, and if we see that a child is developing autism or meets criteria for autism, we'll make that diagnosis and help the family access resources and that kind of thing. So, you know, there, there's um, a degree of benefit in that families get monitoring of their mm -hmm. child's development right. over the first several years. And particularly for families who already have a child with autism, um, they, they see the value in that, I think. Um, but really, for the most part, these families participate because they hope that it will help someone else in the future. So it's quite selfless and pretty amazing. Yeah, I was. I I'm, thank you for sharing all that. And I didn't realize the assessments were so long. I think of the yeah. attention span of a typical neurotypical baby or toddler, and um, having raised to myself, I'm just thinking, <laughs> wow, that's a long day. But um, but uh, but I think that it sounds like you also and your team have an appreciation for for how to make it um, kind of work for everybody. Um, I, right. I will echo what you just ended with because um, when I have had the pleasure of interviewing other researchers who were working with um – you know, human beings and whether mostly children, but uh, occasionally uh, adults as well, the the um, commitment that these families are making, first mm -hmm. of all, to just be part of something. I mean, most of these families often have so much else going on um, yeah. that the idea of saying, sure, we'll also make time for X, Y, Z, you know, and to come and, and do this. Um, and it is really selfless because most uh, of what you're what 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 this study is going to lead to is going to positively, potentially positively impact people who uh, don't even have children yet, whose the children aren't born. Um, exactly. And that I find, um, I find, I used to find it sort of like, you know, not impossible, but just like, wow, I, you know, I had no idea. I've, I've experienced that so many times by this point that I think mm -hmm. that there is something extraordinarily unique and wonderful about the families who have been their children's biggest advocates forever um, and continue mm -hmm. to do so. And I think there's something very special about the autism community um, and maybe the ADHD family community. I don't know as much uh, and I haven't worked as much with those families, but the idea that um, this is such a socially significant uh, 
disorder or delay um, or diagnosis. It's something that families have have really bonded over over the decades mm-hmm. um, because they end up being the, the biggest supporters to each other. And so I wonder if there's something about that where there's it's maybe something that speaks to them or resonates with them um, that this isn't going away. And if there's anything that can be done to, you know, have fewer people stare or, you know, refuse to serve or ask them, you know, ask another family to leave, a, you know, a mm-hmm. restaurant or a store, um, which is where a lot of what these families go through um, on a very real day to day level. I think that's got to be part of it. It's got to be part of why um, there's so many people. People saying yes, so I, I'm I'm thrilled to hear that you have good participation, um, and that you recognize yeah. that. <clears throat> yeah, and I think I think you hit on something important there, and that um, you know the autism community has done a really amazing job with advocacy over the years, um, and I think that has really helped. Though, of course, there's still unfortunately um, stigma that some families experience. I think it's much less than it used to be and a lot more people know at least a little bit about autism that um you know there's a, a bit more understanding on the public side of things yeah. um and and families have really kind of come together banded together to to become really incredible advocates and made a ton of important changes legislatively but also kind of just in their communities i think this is something that has not really happened in AD, in the ADHD world at this point and i'm hopeful that it might over time but i think um ADHD um you know, still has a massive stigma associated with it. A lot of people think that it's not real and that Mm -hmm, people are just lazy and it's just bad parents. So a lot of the stuff that um, is used to be said maybe more about autism and has become taboo because people realize it's not true um, over time um, and is less what people say now than it used to be in the past is still something that people kind of talk about when they talk about ADHD. And so I'm not sure what the barrier has really been for advocacy with respect to ADHD and families um, who are experiencing ADHD, but um, there's definitely room for growth there. And I'm hopeful that um, the ADHD community might be able to kind of learn from and, and use some of the same strategies that the autism community used so successfully over the past couple of decades. Well, that would be a really cool um, kind of very side outcome of, of uh, looking at, at these two diagnoses um, as mm-hmm. somehow connected. I think um, I always, I, you know, we, we can hope. Um, and uh, right. I, I know that it, it comes with a lot of pain and uh, challenge and hard work. But you're right. There's, um, there's been some significant positive changes um, in debunking a lot of the myths around um, autism and where it comes from and that it's not. I mean, it was really not. In, in, in the big picture, it was not that long ago that mothers were blamed for everything. Um, right. And, and that it was, you know, not enough affection and all of that. And so, you know, we have made some significant mm-hmm. progress. We'd like to see that continue. We only have a, mm-hmm. another couple minutes, Megan. I wonder if in those minutes you could just uh, share your thoughts about hopes for the future, plans for, for um, continued research and, and what you think um, or what you hope to be the practical implications over some of what you're involved in today. Yeah, so one is related directly to the study we talked about earlier, which is um, I I just want to mention for families out there that we talk a lot about recurrence risk and the risk being higher for families who already have a child with autism or ADHD. But something that's important to note um, is sort of the flip side of that, that although 
risk is increased in these younger siblings, most actually don't develop autism or ADHD. Mm. So the risk is increased compared to families who don't have a child with autism or ADHD, but um, most of them, most of the younger siblings will not receive a diagnosis of either. Um, And my kind of hopes for the future is that, you know, we've become pretty good at reliably identifying autism very early in life. So we can make reliable diagnoses as early as 18 months of age in some cases, um, though not all cases. My hope is that we'll continue to get better at that and that that, um, th- that, that will make its way out of sort of the lab or university clinic setting and into the community, mm-hmm. um, that community practitioners will become um, much better at identifying autism earlier uh, based on what we've learned from these types of studies, and also that we can start to make the same types of um, strides in ADHD. So right now we can, diag- you know, the average age of diagnosis of ADHD is around age seven, even though pretty much everybody believes that the signs and symptoms begin to emerge earlier. So one of our goals is to see if we can use some of the methods and approaches that have been so helpful in um, identifying early markers of autism and use those same approaches in ADHD to see how early can we identify which children are at greatest risk for ADHD as well and get them into um, services sooner to prevent some of the challenges that come online later once they've kind of manifested the whole um, symptom profile. Makes sense to me. And we've seen so much... um so much positive impact by early diagnosis and then early intervention. Um, and I think across all boards. So, uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. I will hope for the same. And I really appreciate you taking the time, Megan, today to share with us, uh, your studies and, um, and what you're doing at uh, university of uh, California Davis and appreciate what you're doing in the field. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is one in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski and remember Anderson cares. You've been listening to One in 59, a presentation of Anderson Center for Autism. Join us for another edition of the show at the same time next week.